If you could turn to John 1, we'll start and continue our study on the statement of faith. Today, we'll be continuing to talk about God the Son, Jesus Christ. This will be part two. There will be at least one more message and maybe more on this. My first point today is is that Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully man. That might seem very basic. And at one level, it is very basic. There are are a lot of people who aren't even Christians that don't have a problem with that statement. They don't have a problem with with affirming that, that Jesus Christ was a man who lived in time and space in first century Palestine. Um, there are people who claim to be people of faith who affirm that Jesus was a man. I'm not going to name them, but they're out there. But why does it matter to us that Jesus was and is fully man? Uh, I hope to get to that today. But we want to look at what the Scripture says about Jesus being fully man. We've already discussed that Jesus, the Son of God, is fully God as well. But our focus today is on Him being fully man, human as well today. So, here's what John 1.14 says. As the words of God were breathed out through His servant John. In John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. The Word, if you go back up to verse 1, that is the same Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, who was God, became flesh. And John does not want us to know here that Jesus stopped being God and only became flesh. I, I heard it put once this way. I heard, I heard it put that Jesus added humanity to His deity. He did not stop being fully God here in John chapter 1. Now, is there some mystery to this? Yes, there is some level of mystery to this. How can one person be at the same time the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who is everywhere and who is a spirit, and also be fully man? I don't know. (laughs) But the Bible affirms it and states it, and we are to accept it and believe it and trust God that it happened, because it did happen. So you have to play the Deuteronomy 29.29 card with that, because that's one of those secret things that belongs to the Lord our God. Just how and all the mechanics and the full workings of how the, the Son of God became flesh and at the same time was fully God. But make no doubt about it, your Bible and my Bible, they both say that Jesus Christ was a man and He is still a man. This is not something that He did. It is something that He is. Now, there's a book by Walter Elwell. It's called The Topical Analysis of the Bible. And in that book, Elwell cites over 300 verses in the New Testament which describe the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman. He grew physically. He grew in wisdom as a human. He grew tired. 
just like human beings do. He grew hungry just like human beings do. He suffered physical pain just like human beings do. He cared about his mother like human beings do. In Romans 5, Paul calls him that one man, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews called him the one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to speak for myself here, but I think that there are some some really valuable points to be made about his humanity by the fact that he died and the way he died. Say what you want about the Romans and the Roman military, but among the skills the Roman military had, and they had honed this to the highest degree, was killing people. And to do it in the most public, tortuous way possible. When they wanted somebody dead, they made sure that person died. And they knew that they were killing a human being when they did that. When they crucified people, they did it in public. Everybody could see it. They wanted everyone to know that you as men better be careful. If you mess with the Romans, you could be up there too on those crosses. So you don't mess with the Romans. But real soldiers, real human soldiers, they whipped Jesus Christ's real body until He became a bloody mess. They made Him walk through town and outside out, to get outside the gate, to get outside the camp in public carrying a real cross until they draft a real man to carry it. They lay him on that cross made out of real wood. A real man on that cross. And real soldiers put real nails through him to hold him on that cross. And he is raised up for all to see just like the two real men on either side of him. They're all naked. They're all bloody. Jesus was unrecognizable. He's so badly beaten and scourged. And He really died a horrific death. And those real Roman soldiers wanted to make sure that that real man on that real cross was really dead. So they stick a real spear in his side and real blood and fluid come out. And they take him down from that cross. And a couple real men come and they see to it that he's really buried. And real Roman soldiers are put in place to guard the tomb of a real man. It's not a mirage. And that tomb was sealed with a real big stone. Jesus was not somebody who just appeared to be human. No, He was a real man with hair. He sweated. He had a stomach. He had fingernails just like us. And it's, I don't believe it. It was not without thinking ahead to you and I that Jesus tells Thomas, go ahead. Put your fingers in the holes to see if this is Me the man, Jesus Christ. Scripture doesn't speak very kindly about those people who deny that Jesus Christ was a real man. In 1 John, John wrote that it is the spirit of the Antichrist which denies that Jesus came in the flesh. And that it is only by the Spirit of God that men confess that Jesus came in the flesh. And John also told us in 1 John 3, that when Jesus appears again, we're going to be like Him. Us, human beings. Men and women, we're going to be like another human being. 
Jesus Christ. Now, is Jesus Christ a human being? Yes, but He's not merely a human being. He is a real man, but He's also more than just a man because He is the one and only God-man. That's the end of the first point. My next point. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I will start at verse 12 in Deuteronomy 10. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses is telling the people of Israel what the word of the Lord is. And we will start at verse 12. As we read it, your ESVs at least have, again, that word LORD in all caps. That is once again translating the divine covenant name of God, Yahweh. And when you see God in this passage, you're seeing Elohim being translated as in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Every time except in verse 17 when we get there, it's not Elohim being translated, it's El. Then we also have Lord with a capital L and then small case, lowercase O-R-D. That's translating the, the, name, the name Adonai. And there's a reason I'm telling you this, and we'll get there in a minute. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. My point about reading this passage is this passage is about God, right? Yes, this passage is about God. The God of Israel. This is, this is the subject of the passage. This is about God. Because this is about the one true God. Now, let's go to Psalm 136. And we'll look at the first three verses of Psalm 136. We're going to read this, and you're going to see that this is going to be another example, as we see quite often in Scripture, it's a form of parallelism, and here it is synonymous parallelism. Our writer says the three, thing, three things, same thing, but he says it in three different manners. First three verses of Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now, whose steadfast love endures forever? God's. Deuteronomy 10 is about God. Psalm 136 is about God. And, and look at what the psalmist here says about this God, Almighty God here in Psalm 136. I'll, I'll just cite a few examples. What, what, what about God? 
Verse 5. Verse 5 says He made the heavens. Verse 8 says He set the sun to rule the day. Verse 10 says He struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Verse 11 says He brought Israel out of Egypt. Verse 13 says He parted the Red Sea. Verses 18, 19, and 20, they say that He killed great kings, including Sihon and Og. Who is this passage about? God. And it is said of this God in verse 3, He is the Lord of Lords. Our passage in Deuteronomy said He is the Lord of Lords. How many Lord of Lords are there? One. The. Not a. The. The Lord of Lords is the God of Israel. There's only one. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation 17, we will start at verse 11. Remember my point. My point here is about Jesus being Lord. Revelation 17, and I will start at verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. How many Lord of Lords? One. Who does it say is the Lord of Lords here? The Lamb. That word, which we see there as Lamb, in verse 14, it's used 30 times in the New Testament. 29 of them are in the book of Revelation. 28 of those 29 refer to Jesus Christ. So what does this verse say about who Jesus Christ is? He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Lord of Lords from Deuteronomy 10 and Psalm 136. What is said about God in Deuteronomy 10 and Psalm 136 is said about Jesus Christ here. Remember, now, I know that my point today is to establish the humanity of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm, not, I'm not walking back on that. But what I want us to understand is that the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is Lord. Now. Not future. He's Lord now. So, He is Lord whether or not anybody wants to believe it or submit to it. because Just because people say, I'm not going to accept it or I'm not going to believe it, does not make Him any less Lord. He is Lord whether or not people believe it or not. They may not believe it in this life, but they're going to believe it at the end of the age. Because when the end of the age comes, on that great and final day when He returns in the same manner as Acts chapter 1 says, in the same manner in which He, which he left, He's going to come back and He's going to judge the world. He's going to gather His people. He's going to cast the damned into the fires of hell for all eternity. And then they'll bow their knee to Him. 
but it's not going to turn out well if they wait until then to bow because it's going to be on their way to that eternal lake of fire and they will dwell with Satan and his demons for all eternity as God is pouring out His wrath full strength, undiluted upon all those who refuse to submit and bow their knee to Jesus Christ in this life, in this age. Now, let's go to the one other place in Revelation where this phrase is used to describe Jesus Christ, and that's chapter 19. Chapter 19 is going to discuss what I just mentioned here in talking about Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, verse 11. John writes what he saw. What did he see? He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is the Lord of Lords of Deuteronomy 10 and Psalm 136? Jesus. The God-man. All those people who mock Jesus, they mock Christianity now. They mock us. They think we're idiots for believing what we believe. Those, those people who persecute Christians around the world, the persecutors in China, the persecutors in other countries, those people who never leave their worship of Allah, those people who worship the sun, moon, and nature, the people who are lovers of self, the nations, the nations of this passage, verse 15, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, Jesus Christ, is going to strike them down. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. He's going to tread them in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. They mock Him now. And if they continue to mock until the day they die, woe unto them. Woe unto them. Because Jesus will return. And He will exact justice you could read earlier in chapter 19 about the 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 glorified saints and their response to god's justice being poured out upon these people there will be a day this is real just because revelation 19 contains a lot of symbolism does not make it any less real in what the symbolism is meant to convey there are realities here that are going to happen to real people 
with a real man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and real people who have not bowed their knee to Him in faith in this life. And somebody might say that, well, Jesus really isn't Lord now because look at all the stuff going on around in our world. Look at all the craziness and the wickedness going on. Come on. Wickedness has always been around. <laughs> Every generation thinks it's more wicked than the prior generation. You know, stop thinking so highly about our generation that way. Now, maybe we see more of it being manifested in America, but what's being manifested now has always been in people's hearts. You know, believe it or not, the United States is not the center of the universe, <laughs> it just isn't. But Jesus Christ has all authority now as Lord. The Father has given Him all authority now. Just because that authority may not be exercised does not mean He is any less authoritative. Because there is the kindness of God in giving people time to repent. Just because wrath does not come upon everybody now does not mean that Jesus is any less Lord now. His lordship is what is giving people time to repent. You know, woe, woe unto people who think that they can render the Lord of Lord and King of Kings powerless because they think that somehow the devil has more power in this age than Jesus does. And I know there are people that believe that. But the devil is a servant at the end of the day of the Lord. I think it was Spurgeon. Now, this may be another Spurgeon urban legend, but it preaches. Okay, Spurgeon, Spurgeon is said to have said that the devil is God's dog and God holds the leash. Now whether that's actually a quote from Spurgeon or not, it's true. The devil goes no, nowhere that the Lord does not ordain he go. The devil does not overrule the will of God. Ever. Jesus is going to come back the right day, the right time, and we'll see things when this God-man returns that we could never imagine when we encounter Him, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and we see Him as He really is. My next point is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We sing a song by the Gettys. It's entitled, By Faith. And in that song, there are a couple lines that say, By faith the prophet saw a day when the longed-for Messiah would appear. Has the Messiah appeared? Yes. Are the Jews still waiting for the Messiah? Yes. They missed it. We talk about Jesus being the Messiah, but we, you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the roots of all of this. And, and in the time left, we don't have a lot of time to do a, a comprehensive study of this. But I'm just going to take a couple minutes and look at a couple passages where, where the Jewish people were getting their expectations of the Messiah from. Well, you got that encounter in John chapter 4. You've got the Samaritan woman at the well. She's, she's with Jesus. And she says, I know the Messiah is coming. Well, what was she expecting? And why was she expecting it? Now, I'm going to start in Genesis 49, and you could make the point that I could go back farther than that, and I would not debate that. But if you look at Genesis 49, there's a passage which is relevant to our discussion now. Your chapter heading says, Jacob blesses his sons in the ESV. 
Now, Simeon and Levi might debate that fact about it being a blessing. <laughs> but there were sons blessed there. We're going to look at what he pronounces upon Judah, beginning at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Verse 10 is relevant to our discussion here about the scepter not departing from Judah. What is a scepter? A scepter is a symbol of authority. Now, is Jacob speaking future state here? Yes, he is speaking future state. Did he give us all the details about how that was going to play out? Not all of the details, but it is there's some, there's some shadow here about what's going to come. But the people knew that there was going to be something coming, someone coming from Judah. Now, let's go to 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel 7, we have Nathan, the prophet, telling David about what is to come and about who is to come. I'll start at verse 12 in 2 Samuel 7. Verse 12, speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. The point here relevant to this discussion is after David dies, there's going to be a king coming. And this king is going to establish a kingdom which will last forever. Now, I don't know what David's expectation was of this, but could David have expected that was going to happen in the next generation or two at a minimum? It's possible, but it's, the, the Bible doesn't tell us. But the, the, the prophetic utterance here does not say it's going to be within a generation or two. It just says there will be a fulfillment after David dies. Now, the people who, who, who are going to hear 2 Samuel read in their meetings, the people who are going to hear Genesis 49 read in their meetings, they, they, they had an, uh, uh, a grasp of shadow here in Genesis 49, they would know the prophecy of 2 Samuel, a king to come. They knew what Isaiah 11 had to say about the fact that there was going to be a branch from the root of Jesse. And who's Jesse? David's father. David's earthly father. There was going to be a branch from Jesse, Isaiah 11. And that branch would have the Spirit of the Lord resting on him. And that branch would also 
strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. The people of Jesus' day, we're getting back to John chapter 4 and the woman at the well, they knew what Psalm 2 had to say about the Son of God who would break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see a common thread here through all of this. This person is going to rule. And he will rule and he will take care of the enemies of God. So, we get to the time of Jesus. We get to John chapter 4. By that time, what is the Jewish expectation of this Messiah, this anointed one to come? Well, greatly it was influenced by what I would call and what others have said is newspaper exegesis. Maybe better in our day, it's social media exegesis. You interpret your Bible based upon what you see in the newspaper. Or you interpret your Bible based upon what you see on social media. You know, we, we, we know that, that, that a certain theological, uh, biblical interpretation system looks at current events and goes, aha, I can fit this into this niche in the Bible. Well, the problem is, especially over the last 50 years, every time they've done that, they've been wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but... But we don't, we don't interpret the Bible by watching the craziness of the talking heads on TV. We don't want to interpret our Bible by looking at what people are putting on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok or wherever they're putting that stuff. We interpret our Bible based upon what the Bible says. Now, the social media exegesis of Jesus' day said that all these messianic expectations were going to come to a head. The Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is going to take out the Romans in a military manner and the Messiah will rule over Israel, the people of the Old Covenant forever. Wrong. <laughs> we see the expectations of the Messiah being fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And what does the word Christ mean? The anointed one, the Messiah. You think about the times Jesus avoided having the people. They wanted to make him king. He knew, you know, there, there were messianic expectations which were incorrect going on there. Now, let me ask you a question about your ESV, or let me ask you a question about your King James. How many times does the word Messiah appear in the New Testament in your ESV or your King James? But you know. It's only there twice. Okay? It's, it's, <laughs> it's there twice, and both times there's a qualifier on it. There's an explanation that is given to it. And, and I'll get there in just a second. Now, does that mean that the New Testament does not speak about the Messiah at all because the word Messiah is only there two times? Well, not hardly. Because You've got those two times where, where the word Messiah is there. And then it says both times when that word Messiah is there, there's a parenthetic explanation there and it says that Messiah means the Christ. Now, you could make the point that we should be referring to Jesus as Jesus the Christ rather than Jesus Christ, but that's, that's a theological nit that we don't need to address. Okay. The Bible doesn't labor to demand that of us. The bigger point here is that when we see the Son of God referred to as Christ or Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, 
Think Messiah. Because Christos means the anointed one. And that's the word that gets translated into English as Christ. When you look at how Paul referred to Jesus, he referred to Jesus as Christ far more often than he referred to him as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Do your word search. He referred to him as Christ. When he refers to him as Christ, what is he saying? He is saying Messiah. Jesus asks Peter and the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? Right after he had asked them who the people say. You know, we know the passage. What does Peter say? Peter gets it right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's making that definitive statement that this is the guy we've been waiting for. Now, we know that they didn't totally understand it yet. We, we know that even as Jesus is, has been resurrected, we get into Acts chapter 1, they're still asking Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> and Jesus responds by telling them, you'll receive power from on high. <laughs> now, if you, if you look at the passage in, in Luke 24, there were messianic expectations. I'm not going to read it. But you've got that passage of the two disciples going on that seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus with Jesus. And they are bemoaning the fact. They know that that guy of whom they had expectations died on that cross as a man dying a real death and they put him in a real tomb. And they're saying, we thought that that guy was going to be the one to redeem Israel. So they're disappointed. They knew that that guy they thought that was going to redeem Israel had been killed and had been buried. Now you think about that situation. The Jews are still in a form of captivity. Maybe they're not in Egypt, but they're in their land, but they're not in charge. The Romans are in charge. Now, when that, when, that, when that disciple makes that statement, we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Where biblically does that take you back to? That takes you back to Exodus. When they had a redeemer, right? Moses, in essence, was the, was the human agent of the redemption of Israel. Redemption in that time talked about redemption physically from captivity. We know that redemption was not spiritual there because we know there are a lot of lost people, what we refer to as lost, who, who were part of the Exodus, but they were brought out of physical captivity. These people were looking, in essence, for another Moses, another Redeemer to come and be the agent of God's redemption of Israel. Now, did Jesus redeem Israel? Yes. He did redeem Israel. He did buy a people. He did pay a price for a people. He did ransom a people. He ransomed a people from every tribe and language and people and nation, according to Revelation 5. And He redeemed true Israel. He redeemed those whose hearts would be circumcised, not those who merely had a piece of flesh circumcised. End of Romans 2. But then Jesus, Jesus has that seven-mile-long Bible study with them in Luke 24. He tells them everything that the Hebrew Scriptures said about Himself, and I'm sure that there was some 
some teaching in there about all of the shadows in the Old Testament there that, that talked about Himself. Now, can we find those? Yeah, we can find those if we, if we look. If we look with the right eyes. But my point is that man of Genesis 49, the one, the one that we see spoken of in the blessing to Judah, the king of 2 Samuel 7, the Messiah, the king Israel had been waiting for. Did He come? Yes. Did Israel get it? No. They're still waiting. And if they're not going to receive Jesus as the Messiah, they're never going to have a Messiah. Because He came once for that purpose. And the next time He comes, it's not to redeem Israel. It will be to judge those and to gather His people. So, Jesus tells that woman at the well, John 4, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. She says, when He comes, He's going to tell us all things. And that's, another, that's one of those instances where the two, the two in the New Testament, you've got one in John 4, you've got the other one in John chapter 1. There's a parenthetic reference there. He who is called the Christ to explain the Messiah use there. Now, why did John write the Gospel? Remember from all my sermons on the Gospel of John. John wrote that Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, in order that so that the people who heard it read or read it themselves on their scroll or read it in their Bibles or look at it on their phones today, he wrote it in order that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they would have life in His name. The Christ. The Son of God. So that people would know that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. The longed-for Messiah has appeared. What does Jesus say in response to that woman's statement in John 4 when she says, I know the Messiah is coming. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus says, I am He. You've got scholars claiming that Jesus never said He was the Messiah. I guess they don't have John 4 in their Bibles. <laughs> you know, you've got people claiming Jesus never claimed deity either. I guess they've never got the New Testament in their Bibles either. I don't know how you read John 4 and say Jesus never claimed to be Messiah unless you read it with an unbelieving blind heart and eye. It's as plain as the nose on your face to use the saying. Now, we we could go we could go to Revelation if we had more time and look at and look at what Revelation five says about the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah being the Lamb of God. Who is the Lamb of God? Jesus Christ. The Lion of Judah is Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, who is the Lord of Lords, who is the King of Kings. The other message, the other, the other mention in the in the New Testament of that word Messiah in your ESV, as I said, is in John chapter one. It's when Andrew encounters the Messiah. He says, he he's got he he finds it out, and then he runs to his brother. And who is Andrew's brother? Simon, Simon Peter. He runs to his brother and he tells him what we have found the Messiah. My question for everybody in this room today is, have you found the Messiah? 
Maybe better, has the Messiah found you? Praise the Lord if the Messiah has found you today. If the Messiah has not found you, you can come to Him today. You must come to Him. Walk away from your sin. Say, I'm not going to live that life anymore. Because if you're not following the Messiah, you're following your sin. There's only two ways in this life. There's the way of life and the way of death. The Messiah has come that we might have life. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Messiah in faith. Praise the Lord that He has given people time to do that. The fact that you are here today with a heartbeat and breathing. Or, or people who, who are watching online today. They may be lost. You people too. <laughs> They've got time. But you don't know how much, do you? You just don't know. Because you don't know how long you're going to live. And we don't know when Jesus is going to return when the sky splits open. What if that happens this afternoon in three hours? Don't wait if you haven't come to Christ. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one way to be reconciled to God the Father, and that's through faith in the Son. And if you don't have the Son embracing Him by faith, you don't have the Father. And if you don't have the Father, you have eternal fire in your future. And we're going to expand on Jesus being the one way in the next message. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we read what You have given us in Your Word about, about Your Son. About Your Son, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. Father, what a gift You've given us. What a gift of mercy. What a gift You have given to rebellious sinners. What a gift You have given to the wicked. And that is all of us in our natural state. That we were all just like our brother King David conceived in sin. But Lord, You sent you sent Your Son to rescue. You sent Your Son to save. Father, we are thankful for that today. And Father, we pray for those who might be in this room who are not yet within the sheepfold. We pray that they would believe today. We pray that they would turn from their sin. We pray, Lord, that You would cause that to happen today. We pray, Lord, that those people we know and love personally or those people we encounter just peripherally, we, we pray, Lord, that You would save. Because we know that the, that, that the days are last. And we don't know when the last day will come and neither does any other mere human being. So Lord, we just ask You to move. 
We ask you to move in this room. We ask you to move in our families. We ask you to move at our places of employment. We ask you, Lord, to move in this city, in this county. We ask you, Lord, to move amongst our politicians. Lord, you command us to pray for our politicians. And Lord, yes, I do pray for our politicians. I pray that our politicians would be wise and make wise decisions and make wise decisions, Lord, that that are in line with your word, even if they know not that they're doing so. But Lord, we're just thankful today. In Jesus' name, amen.